0: All right, folks, what's going on? This is Jake Hofer, and this is Land Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And we are on step one now. So we have nailed down step zero in the last two episodes. And the reason we did that is because we talked with a lender that specializes in recreational agricultural loans for land. And if you are in Illinois, I definitely suggest you listen in to that episode. It is Farmington Bank, and they have some really great loan products, and uh, they're down payment is quite a bit lower than some of the other major competitors like Compeer and uh some more larger institutions there's pros and cons to you know each bank and we discussed that and hopefully you guys enjoy that and then the following step zero episode was with john gibbons and he deals with more house loans but we discussed the kind of the interesting thing where you can buy a house with a lower down payment and have conventional financing so basically this is for someone that wants to buy a house in 40 or a house in 80 or a house in 20 you know whatever that is to you so that is another really good episode and it is a great foundation to have an idea of some things you should know before you start looking for land and now before we get into this episode and discuss step one just a couple quick announcements, um, head over to the link tree. You can sign up for the email newsletter. We're going to be having exclusive resources for you guys that sign up. We have not sent out an email newsletter yet, but I see that there's a pile of folks that have signed up promise. You're going to be getting some exclusive and helpful content there. If you enjoy the episode, be sure to leave a written review. It really help us out. And also the goal is to help 100 people buy their first piece of dirt. And if they're, If you find any value, any information, or if there's anything I can help with, let me know. I want to add you to the spreadsheet because the goal is to help 100 people. And I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to do it. And I'm looking forward to helping all 100 folks. Now it's time to talk a little bit about the search for land. We have a snippet from a conversation with Don Higgins from Trocam Radio that we had this past July, I believe. It was episode 184 on Trocam Radio. So if you enjoy the portion with Don Higgins, we have about an hour conversation with him about some additional items. And uh, really appreciate him taking the time to hop on and discuss with us some of these topics, and I think that you'll find a lot of insight. We ask him some interesting questions in terms of if he had to start it all over and uh, what type of property would he look to buy and some key things that you really need to consider before you decide if that is the parcel for you. But before we get into that, I just want to touch on some higher level 30,000 foot view of the search for land, and I'm just going to break down some extreme basics that maybe Some folks take for granted or maybe they don't know. And so I'm just gonna work through these notes and then we're gonna dive into the conversation with Don. All right, so starting with the maybe obvious but maybe not so obvious depending on your journey of looking for land. One of the first locations I would certainly suggest is land syndication websites like LandWatch, Lands of America are two of the key marquee uh, locations where basically all brokers are any land broker is syndicating to LandWatch or lands of America. That company basically it's land.com basically has that whole entire market cornered and uh, it's pay to play. So you'll have on the top of them, you'll see some of these, I forget what they call them, signature listings basically. And those ones are people pay to get to the top in your search results, but be sure to look past those. Cause that means that there's more, below and it's just no different than searching for anything else online. Just look at those filters and make sure that you are doing everything you can, but also don't solely focus on the signature listings. You can obviously Google land for sale and X county, but I will give you this quick fair warning and it's, it's some level of credit to whitetail properties. They do probably the best job with SEO and they'll be the first brokerage that shows up. But the key thing to think of there is that you're only seeing their listings and you're not seeing all, broker's listings for that area or county for land now if you're just kind of randomly looking on locations traditional online syndications like zillow and realtor that's a great location to look i will say that some land listings will only be on those locations and then some land listings will only be on land watch and lands of america so if you're looking you really have to look at both now if any of my listings you'll find on zillow realtor land watch and i don't know like four or 500 other websites. So I make sure that all my listings get everywhere so I can make sure that if someone wants to buy it, they're going to find it. But a little peek into the industry, it's some, some brokerages do not want to have them on Zillow or realtor because that those platforms sell out buyer leads. And so you might get a agent that calls the listing agent for land that really doesn't deal with land, but they bought the lead. And then now, you know, the deal gets a little bit messier because you're not having a land specialist help you. But regardless, that happens and that's kind of looking to that. And then some of these other listings that are on Zillow and realtor exclusively that those brokerages don't want to pay to be on land watch or lands of America, because like I said, they have a monopoly in the market cornered for those types of uh, locations. But definitely if you're looking for land, do not overlook Zillow realtor. You can go in and change those um, filters basically to lot size and you should be able to find exactly what you need. And uh, it's certainly a great location and Less searching for land is like hunting. Of, uh, leave no stone unturned. There's obviously hot spots and great areas to really focus and key on, but where there's less potential buyers to find it, the more edge you will have as a buyer. Now, another thing in terms of the search for land, and all this might seem like common sense, but I'm telling you, keep your eyes peeled when driving around. Look for that uh, t- I don't know piece of plywood that's on a side of the road that says "land for sale." or a for sale by owner, a little sign on the edge of a wood lot, certainly great locations to look. Now, what I'll say is this, they'll either be a really good deal or a really bad deal in my opinion. So make sure you have enough market knowledge to be able to decipher which is which. And also as a seller, you get more money by listing it on average. So because the ones that don't sell for sale by owner are just grossly overpriced and no one's ever going to buy them. But, You know, there's, there's pros and cons and it's, there's a lot of things that tie together, but definitely as you are looking for land, keep an eye out for those. It could be a great deal or it could be a really crappy deal. And to know which is which uh, you'll need to do some level of due diligence. Now, one of probably the best suggestions for finding a great deal or finding land that you want to buy is talk with an area expert broker that does a strong amount of deals and has a true specific knowledge for the area you're interested in. There's some brokers that cover very large areas. They're very high volume. They are, I'm sure, fantastic real estate agents, but they don't know the ins and outs of the area. And when you're buying a piece of hunting ground, knowing the area, knowing the neighborhood is crucial and extremely important. So you know what you're getting, in, getting into when you buy it. Obviously there's a lot of due diligence you can do, and any good broker will do that for you. But to kind of have someone in your corner, they're in it every day, having their ear to the ground can really help you. If you are nailed down step zero and you're ready to start looking for land and be, um, you know, move, move with the speed and intensity when the time is right. So find a buyer's agent that can be in your corner. And, uh, if anyone listening to this needs help finding a good buyer's agent, reach out and I'll be happy to find someone that's a top producer or a very, effective agent in your area that you're looking. So, um I've done that a handful of times and I think that everyone's been happy up to this point. Now, the other thing is finding off-market deals. So, there's a some level of art form and I think that in order to find an off-market deal, you either need to be in that area or tied into the community or you know, have some sort of resource. And so that's great for if you're looking to buy where you're at, but I know a lot of people end up buying a farm and then Maybe they need to be an hour away from where they're at, just from maybe they live in a more metropolitan area, a suburb, a more populated area, and they need to travel to get to better hunting. So in order to find an off-market deal like that, very challenging. And that's the importance of working with a good buyer's agent. But, you know, let people know that you're looking for land. Um, Say, hey, I'm I'm looking to buy land. Do you know of anyone that might want to sell? And you never know. You'll probably be on a bunch of wild goose chases, but you just you know, if you're ready to roll and that could be a great way to find the parcel that you're looking for. Another thing is Craigslist. Um, I know there's Anthony Heller. He bought their farm in Wisconsin off Craigslist and he's going to be on the podcast here to talk about uh, his process. Um, So that's another location. Facebook, Facebook marketplace is another location. Once again, a lot of those farms on there are just grossly overpriced and it's people are, you know, like, man, if someone's willing to pay it, yeah, I'll sell it in reality. It's just, it's overpriced, but there's, I'm sure there's been deals found on that and that's a great location. Another one that could be very strong, takes a lot of due diligence and some level of focus is targeting on key farms and sending them handwritten letters, explaining who you are, what you want to do, why you want to buy it. And, um, just, you know, letting it be known. Obviously, once again, hard to say, but at the end of the day, these are all very good options for your search for land. I think that some people think that just because it's listed online, that it can't be a good deal now, but I'm telling you, there's been a lot of strong deals that I've seen (laughs) executed that were listed. Anyone could have bought them in the whole world, and for whatever reason, they are overlooked. And you know, so I'm just... (laughs) Do not think you're overpaying just because it's listed by brokerage. I guess what I'm trying to say, I think that that's a common misconception of people. So those are some of the locations to look. And then I think the other thing when you're searching is to make sure you have the right level of patience. You want to be precise, but not overly picky. If you've been looking to buy ground for maybe I would say over the years where I start to question the level of motivation, because I mean, right now, obviously inventory is extremely low. But given normal circumstances, there's usually a pretty good buffet of properties to look at. And I think if you're, you know, been looking for multiple years, either you're too picky or you're not as motivated as what you say. And that's just my opinion on that, and I don't think anyone should rush into buying a property that they don't think they'll like or enjoy or checks off their boxes, but that's something to strongly consider. The other thing is, I think when you're looking for land is just because a deal has been listed for a long time, it doesn't mean it's a bad deal. And in fact, with how the market has been in the last year or two years, it might be a good thing that it was listed a year ago and it may have been five or 10% over, you know, overvalued on the list price then. But if prices have gone up 20, 25% in your area, now that thing's underpriced by 15% and people just think that there's a stigma because it's been listed for a long time and there must be something wrong with it or, you know, all these different things go into that. But there's multiple people that I've helped buy parcels that have been listed for a long time and knock on wood. Every one of them has been a very strong purchase in terms of what did it end up appraising out at or their level of uh, success on a whitetail perspective or, you know, whatever their goals were. A lot of times those are really, really great locations or great properties to key in on. Obviously, you want to make sure that you're not buying a crappy property and you know there's due diligence there. That's good to have an agent in your corner that knows the area to be like, Oh yeah, that's why it hasn't sold. Or you have the the flip side of it. It's like, yeah, it's it was over it was overpriced. It is not overpriced now. You know, does this check off your boxes? Yes, no? Okay, great. And the importance and the reason I've started this mini series is after step zero, if you truly do that, you are able to move swiftly when the right farm comes along and you can move forward with confidence and precision. You know where you're at financially. You know what you can get from the from the bank. You know the loan product you're going to be getting into. You can go get a pre-approval letter in a moment's notice so you can include that with your offer, which we'll be talking about how to write a great offer. And all that just Compiles into being a very strong and effective buyer. So, we hope that makes some sense. Hopefully, you learned a thing or two in your process of looking. There's obviously a lot more, you know, craziness in the world of real estate where someone might fall into a deal, but these are some great starting points and things to really consider. I think the more people you talk to, the better off you are. And now it is time to get into the conversation with Don Higgins and his suggestions on what to consider and everything else and goes into a type of property that piques his interest. So we hope you enjoy it. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Well, uh, should we dive into some of the questions we have right here? Yeah,
1: yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, I was a little (laughs) off the cuff
0: there, but yeah. Sure. Okay, so um, one question we kind of have here is you walk a lot of farms and you've helped a lot of people make farms better. And I, I feel with a lot of things, there's always the lowest common denominator like the one thing that has is in common with all those parcels and based on your experience like what have you seen that the top tier like the top one percent of farms like what all those farms have in common is it uh, seclusion is it the size of the parcel is it cover if you had to boil it down to one thing or a couple things what typically makes a farm just like top 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 tier
2: well i I think the the layout of the property for one thing, but I tell people all the time, the most important thing, whether you're buying a property or, or leasing or whatever, what is around that property is more important than what's on it. And uh, what I mean by that is you could take a 10 acre property. that's nothing but open ag field, not a tree on it. And if it sits right next to a thousand acre sanctuary where no hunting is allowed, and you put food on that ten acres of ag field, ag field that you buy or lease. Why well, you can have fantastic honey. Um, so, and I think that's a loss. A lot of people lose that that idea when they're buying or or leasing a farm. Is they don't look beyond the boundary. Um, they they look at what's there, and don't consider what's what's around the the property. So that's that's a big one. Um, I think there's probably more properties ruined by too much hunting pressure than anything. Uh, That's something very common that I see from one client to the next is, is a lot of people, you know, deer hunting is different to different people. And for a guy like me, it's, it's almost a solitary thing. I'm kind of a loner anyway, and it doesn't bother me one bit to spend a week alone sitting in a tree where other people, you know, they want to have friends around when they go to camp at night and sometimes they even got to have them in the tree with them and and it's very common to see a property with way too many hunters on it and too many hunters means there's not going to be mature bucks uh, to any degree anyway so those are a couple big ones
1: No, you said something there about you know not paying attention to or not fully understanding of what's around that property and just from um i guess a a listener perspective i've I've tuned into you know the chasing giants podcast and listen to you and terry you guys do a great job but there was a specific episode where you were referencing like a hub and a spoke of a wheel could you i guess go through that um that analogy of you know your property being a hub and the spokes going to you know other hubs and whatnot could you could you go back over that for our listeners
2: yeah and i don't recall the specific episode you're talking about but you know, you, you want your property to be, you know, the the prime property in an area. So it, it's the hub. It's where the surround deer on surrounding properties come to your property at some point. You know, it's part of their travel. And, um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of that is uh, security. If you've got the most secure property in an area, the deer are really going to, you know, Focus in on that, and that's where they're going to go when the pressure's on. Uh, Food will really help hold them there, especially food in the late season. And uh, I think a lot of guys manage their farm for hunting season. And I take a different approach. I manage my property for the entire year. I don't ever want a deer to have to leave for food. Um, It doesn't matter what, what month it is. I want food there for them, quality food. And I want security cover there, you know, every day of the year as well. And when other, you know, landowners around me are putting pressure, um, on their property or, or they don't have food on their property, well, guess what? The deer are coming to my place. So my place kind of becomes the hub, the central, you know, activity center, if you will, for the deer in my neighborhood.
1: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah. To- I- totally, totally, makes sense. Um, so I guess like when if uh you know a land buyer a leaser and I guess anyone looking to get into their own private parcel whether it's purchasing or leasing taking that approach is probably like you said it's I guess in reality that's one of the or the most important thing is making sure that you're kind of better or the best in every aspect around whitetail habitat um hunting pressure food cover all those things Kind of full spectrum in that deer neighborhood.
2: Right. I mean, uh, you know, I tell my clients all the time to think of your property as one square on a giant checkerboard. Mm-hmm. You're surrounded by other properties and you got to make your square the best square on the checkerboard. And to make it the best, you got to make it different. You've got to offer things that nobody else on the checkerboard's offering. And, and that can be different food sources. Um, it can be a degree of security that they can't find anywhere else. It can be a type of cover. Um, for example, maybe nobody else in your neighborhood has switchgrass fields. Um, if you've got a, a large switchgrass patch on your property, well, you're probably going to have some box bedding. It. Right. So anything you can do to make your place different and better.
1: Yeah. A little more diverse. Um, one, one quick question on, you know, we we're talking about hunting pressure and um, sanctuaries. What's, you know, what's your thought? There's, I guess, let me frame it up this way. There's two total different ends of the spectrum around sanctuaries and hunting bedding areas, right? There's, there's guys that have parcels that, you know, they block off X amount of acres. That's their sanctuary there. It is a cardinal sin to ever step foot in that area of their property, unless they're retrieving deer. But then you have other guys that, you know, that's their whole strategy is to hunt bedding areas. Um, where do you fall in line with, with, um, like eith- either, one of those thoughts or, or strategies, ideologies?
2: Well, I, I think I fall right in the middle because, uh, I like to hunt bedding areas, but I'm hunting right on the edge of them. Um, I've got sanctuary or a sanctuary on my property. The whole heart of my property is a sanctuary. And I stay totally out of it. I give it to the deer, but I'm hunting the edges all the way around it with my scent always blowing out. So, you know, I'm kind of somewhere in between, I guess.
1: Okay. No, it makes sense. Um, I guess let's, moving on here. Um, I guess what's, uh, we'll stay on the on the habitat side. Like what's one thing, like looking back at, you know, your, your farm, things that you've done previously throughout the years, what's one thing you look back and just cringe that, you know, you put yourself through, put your, put your property through. What's one thing you would do over?
0: Wow. That's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> Chad stole that question from me. I wrote that down. He <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah. jumped right to it. <laughs> well,
2: um, and, and to add- know, I guess it's probably my hunting approach. Whenever I, I started, I, I didn't realize the importance of, of security in a sanctuary and uh and i think that's pretty common with deer hunters if everybody gets hung up on food plots got to plant a food plot you know got to plant the right thing in that food plot. that's the that's what's going to make me successful having a food plot and what i plant on and, and that's not the case at all um security is hands down the most important thing on a property once i figured that out my success just skyrocketed and uh you know, I planted some things, uh, basically some CRP seed mixes and such that, that I thought would be better cover than they were. And I'm actually in the process now of converting some of those over to some better grasses um, that are taller, stand better. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my property is, is a work in progress. It's It's never done, I don't think. At one point, I thought I would soon be done and I could just sit back and relax the rest of my days and never have any projects to do. But I discovered that's never going to happen. There's always going to be something to do to make it just a little bit better. Because I'll sit in my tree stands and and I'll just observe and I'll think, if I just did this, it'd be just a little bit better. And I'll take notes, and then come off season, I've got a whole list of notes of things to do on my my property. So I don't think it's I think it's a never ending process.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: I when I hear when I listen about your farm, I can never picture. What it looked like and obviously you don't, I don't i'm not asking you to any google earth creepers can figure it out based on this answer but like how did you buy that parcel in terms of did you buy it as one piece was it listed what did it look like when you bought it and then kind of like what were some of the transformations you've made uh, over the years that you've owned it
2: well actually the the farm where i live was my grandparents farm um the house that i live in my mom was born in that house and so i've been here since the day i was born basically I grew up about three miles away, but, uh, I spent a lot of time as a kid on this property. And when my grandparents passed away, I I purchased it and, uh, I've made, uh, let's see, two other purchases of of ground that butts up to their original. Originally they only had 30 acres. It was a real small farm Mm -hmm. and I, I bought two other tracks to give me 120 acres today, but, uh, It just kind of fell into my lap. And the the crazy thing is, is when I started um, about 30 years ago, there was hardly any deer here. I mean, if I seen a deer track on this farm, it was newsworthy. And I I started planting trees and and creating cover. And um, I I I just dreamed that if I could sit in a tree stand and maybe see four or five deer on a hunt, that'd just be awesome one day on my own property. And... (laughs) Reality is is totally blown away that dream. I mean, I've sit in my stand and seen up to over 70 deer, actually, in one hunt. Over 17 antlered bucks, or, or 17 antlered bucks, not over 17, but 17 antlered bucks on one hunt. So, uh, you know, it, it lays out beautiful, but at the time when I, I first bought it and started working on it, I, had, I, I thought it was a terrible place. <laughs> I mean, I, I just... It's not surrounded by any woods. It's surrounded by open ag fields. And I thought, here I am with just this property with no woods around. How am I ever going to get deer to stay here? And the beauty of it today is that with no woods around me, I don't have people sitting in my property line. And uh, it's kind of an oasis, a deer oasis in a sea of ag. And, you know, I can let bucks go. And sometimes they live, sometimes they don't. But I think I can probably let them go and, and have a better expectation of them surviving than a lot of other land managers so you know there was no uh, method to the madness it just kind of fell into my lap
0: what's the like what's the mix of cover versus food percentage on that 120 acres is it like an 80 20 you know 80 percent cover 20 percent food or what does that mix look like on your farm
2: no i've only got well i've got a 25 acre ag field so you can take that right out of the mix and there's that leaves less than 100 acres um of what's left the 95 acres that's left um probably only about 10 acres of that is food uh a, a beauty of the property that again i had no idea just fell in my lap was those ag fields that surround me take a lot of the browse pressure off of my plots mm-hmm. so i can probably get away with planting fewer acres of food plots than a lot of land managers just because right across the property line pretty much all the way around me is our ag fields That the deer in the evening time, they can walk, you know, into the neighbor's ag field and start feeding. And, uh, my plots are basically to get them through the winter.
0: Got it. So, so really roughly out of the hundred, you have 10 acres of food plots that you plant. And then obviously, like you said, the neighboring farms are are doing a lot of the heavy feeding uh, throughout the year. Is that right? Right. Okay. So I guess with it, Let's say ninety percent of it being cover. What are what's the mix of that? Obviously, um, some of the more sturdy grasses, like you are talking about. But what are how how does your farm have so much stain power?
2: Well, it, it's diversity. Um, I've probably got thirty-five acres of tall grasses, um, broken down into three different fields, um, and the rest is is wooded cover. I mean, yeah, I've got you know pine and spruce thickets um i got oak flats i got uh just uh, a mixture of briar patches and odd odds and ends saplings growing up um see basically when i bought it it was a cattle pasture it was kind of gently rolling has a small creek that goes through it along that creek there were some giant bur oak trees but there was no ground cover. The, the cattle that had been there for years, and I actually had cattle at one point on the farm, and they just, you know, kept the the woody vegetation down. It was just nothing but grasses. And I got rid of the cattle about thirty years ago, and and converted that those old pastures into various types of cover, and it just keeps getting better.
0: So let me ask you this: If you had to start all over again, would would you want to start with and uh, in- abandoned uh, cattle pasture again, or, um, I guess what are some of the key, uh, it, it sounds like listening, it has like the mix of everything. It has a creek running through it. It has the Oak flats and, you know, obviously you've, you've added a lot of diversity too, but if someone wanted to duplicate what you've done, do you think having a quote unquote blank canvas is uh, very important or do you think you can overcome some of those items?
2: Well, I, if I was going to do it again and I was younger, I would definitely look at it the cattle pasture it just there's a lot of things that come with that cattle pasture. usually especially in our area of the midwest if if ground is flat it's it's probably being farmed so Mm -hmm. cattle pastures are usually gently rolling a lot of times they'll have a creek through them a lot of times they'll have a, a few scattered big trees for shade for the cattle and, uh, it doesn't get them cattle off of there. And you really don't even have to do anything to have deer habitat. Just get them cattle off there and let mother nature take its course. And, you know, it won't be long before weeds and briars and saplings are growing up. And I think the best deer cover there is, bar none, is a growed up cattle pasture to the point where it's not growed up to the point where there's no grass. When you've got a cattle pasture that's got a lot of saplings in it, briars, weeds and such, but there's still, when you look on the ground, you can still see some grass. And what I found is that the bucks really love to bed in in those grassy areas versus like a a mature woods where there's nothing but leaves on the ground. Mm -hmm. They really like that uh, regeneration where there's still some grass on the ground. Uh, It needs to be thick, don't get me wrong. It's not open grassy areas, but as that regeneration is taking place and, and the, the grasses have not yet totally given way to the woody cover,
0: um, that is absolutely the best deer cover you can find. Makes me feel good. I hunt a lot of those. <laughs> the last two leases I got, I heard exactly that. So uh, no, that's interesting. Um, let me ask you this though. Okay. What a, what about a blank canvas of a farm that's been completely clear cut? Someone went in there with a chainsaw and chopped down every tree and we'll add some more information. It's south facing, and there's only like I don't know, let's say ten percent of trees st- still standing. Every marketable tree was chopped out of it. Um, pretty good elevation changes, and it's all south facing. Butts up to Big Ag. Is that something that would entice you, or would it be something like, well, it's you know the payoff's going to be way too long for to to get back to where it needs to be?
2: No, that, that'll be fantastic cover, and it won't take long. Get that sunlight in there, and um, the woody vegetation is just going to come on in a hurry.
0: Mm-hmm. How would you, how would you kind of, uh, obviously would you want to pocket some things out to like help define the deer movement? Cause if like quite literally, if the whole thing was chopped up and basically all of it's going to grow back super thick, would you still just have a couple areas of interest or like, what would you do in that scenario? Well, I mean, I,
2: it varies by the property. It's it's hard to imagine what you're trying to describe as far as – I mean, I, I can envision a south-facing slope that's been clear-cut, but mm-hmm. um, how it lays out in relation to, to what's around it, I, I like big cover. I think uh, that's a huge mistake that a lot of land managers make is they make their sanctuary too small. And, you know, on my 120 acres, you can just about figure that – And we're really we're looking at 95 acres once you take out the 25 uh, ag field. So my 95 acres, you know, I got 10 acres of food, which leaves about 85 acres, and I got another, say, 10 that comes out from my house. I got a house and and barn and a small pasture that's about 10 acres, give or take. So, you know, we're down to about 75 acres or so, and of that 75 acres, it's essentially 100 percent sanctuary Mm -hmm. every stand on my property if you come to my property every stand is within 10 yards of the edge and i always hunt it with the scent blowing out across an open ag field and it's easy to access across the open ag fields it doesn't get any simpler um you know it's much easier to hunt than than an area that's heavily wooded Uh, i'll be the first to admit that but you know, a lot of people still will put way too much pressure uh, on other properties just like this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, we're all guilty of, and I speak on behalf of, on the Exodus side of probably trying to overcomplicate sometimes, over, overcomplicate things at times. But um, do you think that's just part of the the success of obviously on your home farm there with just having the ability to access it in multiple ways and, and being able to hunt the edge consistently without educating your herd?
2: Yeah, and to be honest, it's something that builds over time. Now, um, I try to stress this with my consulting clients. I'll lay out a custom plan for each property, and I often tell them to to be thinking five years in advance. Don't don't expect next season you're going to do all these things, and it's instantly going to get better. Um, you know, for example, on my piece, the deer when I started, if I would jump a deer, it would take off and just You know, it'd leave the property. It'd take off across the open ag fields and it would run to the next woods, which may be a mile away across the ag field. Well, today, when I jump a deer, a lot of times they don't even, they won't leave the property. They'll just run to the other side of the property. They don't want to leave because they feel so secure. Mm. And it's taken years and decades, really, and generations of deer. It's almost like it's ingrained in them anymore. And I even think the deer. This is going to sound really crazy, but I, I really believe the deer on my place know my smell versus someone else's smell. And the reason I say that is if there's been many times when I've sit in a tree stand and my scent's blowing out in the ag field. Here comes some deer, and they just happen to be out in the ag field, and get downwind of me, and the way they react is often just they may flare. They, they don't blow and just run across the country like they did. 30 years ago they'll maybe flare their tail stick their nose in the air and trot back into the woods or, or sometimes they even just they, they i know they smell me but they don't even run the other way it's just like they it's almost like they're thinking oh there's dawn again i just pass on by and give him a little bit of distance and i'll be fine and the reason that i think this is because when i'm sitting in a tree with a cameraman and a deer gets downwind of us it's totally different. The deer just go berserk. That mm-hmm. they'll start blowing and snorting and carrying on like they do any on any other property. But if I'm by myself, the reaction is just totally different. And, and I believe the deer on this farm, over decades, one generation to the next, have come to accept me almost as part of the landscape and not really a threat to them.
1: Well, I don't think that that thought or concept is you know that far out there. I've heard guys. Nothing. No one specifics coming to mind right now, but I've heard guys, you know, talk about, you know, doing things that are repetitive to making making deer custom to your process. Whether that's the way you check cameras, like you use an ATV every single time, or use a bicycle every single time, or use a tractor every single time, or use the same gate every single time. But I've heard guys talk about doing things the same way, checking trail cameras with the wind blowing the same way, and hoping, I guess they're hoping cause there's no hard evidence, you know, from their success that it actually works, but their, their thought is if they do things the same way, then deer will get used to that or accustomed to, you know, their process and, and ultimately their sin and whether it's, you know, in their, in their core area or not. So I don't, I mean, it's, um it's something that's probably hard to like wrap your hand around and say it's tangible, but I don't think that thought, that thought or ideology is is you know that far out in left field at all.
2: Yeah, and I can tell you for absolute certain that if a deer can hear you coming on you know some piece of equipment, and he has time to decide how he's going to react before you get there, whether he's going to just lay his head down on the ground and let you pass, or he's going to sneak away, or whatever, or, or blow see how close you get and then blow out of there if they can hear you coming and they have time to think about it and react, it's not near as much pressure on them as, you know, you're walking and you slip up on them and they don't hear you coming in their yard, you know, 15 yards from where he's bedded. And then he finally detects you. Right. That That's a whole different level of stress than, than them hearing you coming on an ATV or tractor or whatever.
1: Right. No, it makes sense. It mm-hmm. makes, makes, makes total sense. Um,
2: now, if there's somebody else hunting there and screwing things up, that, that's a different story, too. But if I can get on the property I need to without people screwing it up, I, I feel like I can kill just about any buck alive today. And I don't want that to sound arrogant or like, you know, I'm a bragging or anything like that. It's just that, like, again, like I said, years and years of trail camera history, putting it all together, when it comes time to finally go after a buck, it should be fairly easy.
1: So what are the like? What are those things that you're looking at from from those um, from those years of, of card pulls and years of photos? Is it simply daytime movement? Is it a specific you know trail that he's using Is it a specific pattern? Like what are what are the the things that you're drawing out of those of that trail camera information?
2: Well, I want to know specifically where he's at and when he's there, and I, I don't mean specifically as in time of day, but I mean time of season. So. The first week of October, I know this is, this is where he's going to be. Um, come the rut, this is where he's going to be. Come the late season, this is where he's going to be. And, uh, I can have my stands all prepared before he ever gets there. And I can totally stay away and let the deer be on that property or in that area be totally relaxed until he shows up. And then when he shows up, I show up and, and the deer there are moving, you know, without being pressured mm-hmm. And he'll do the same so i mean i to be honest i hunt less as far as just sitting in a tree i hunt less today than i ever have in my life but i'm having the best success ever and again it it really boils down to the trail camera
1: mm-hmm. so you know when you're going in and i guess um, hanging those stands and doing any types of improvements, are you hanging them relatively close to some of your camera locations? Uh,
2: sometimes. It just depends on the, the property and the right. situation. Right. I prefer to keep my trail cameras You know, out on – I don't even care about getting a daylight picture. I just assume have my trail camera on a property out on an edge, a field edge where I can just drive right up to it on a four-wheeler and change that card and not be putting any pressure on the property at all all I want to know is that the deer's there. If he's there, I know where to hunt him and where, you know, where my stand needs to be and things like that. I'm more interested in knowing when he's at a certain location.
1: Got it. Got it. And I guess, I mean, being in, you know, big ag ground with, you know, outside of your, your personal farm, but being in big ag ground with probably limited timber and limited cover is it a fair assumption to say that it's a little easier to draw those conclusions of where those deer are going to be during, during daylight hours? Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think that open ag country is, it can be some of the most frustrating because you can sit there and not see very many deer and a lot of deerless hunts, uh, you know, versus some areas that are a good mix of timber and and ag, but (laughs) you can really pin down those, those mature bucks that are living in farm country.
1: Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. I know just from, um, you know, I've only hunted Illinois one season, but we had a, uh, a, you know, a decent chunk of ground there, uh, most of it tillable, but it seemed like while we were there hunting, you were, you were either in it or you were just totally out of the game. And it just felt like there were different pockets or different little sections of timber and Creek bottoms that, you know, it would be hot for a couple of days and then boom, it would dry up and then if it it's hot somewhere else. And we saw that not only from trail cameras, but also from, from stand sightings as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of my success is also, I know what kind of property to look at, to look for. Um, when I'm, when I'm going to looking in a new area, like I'm looking in Iowa now, um, I want to. I want to place everybody else is overlooking. I don't want. I want zero competition from other bow hunters mm-hmm. because it, it takes so little pressure to just totally change a, a mature buck's habits that I don't want to take a chance that you know I've sit here and I've waited for you know till who knows maybe early November to go in and hunt a spot. I don't want to take a chance that some other bow hunter was in there in October and screwed it all up so i'm looking for places that everybody else is ignoring because i guarantee you mature bucks doing the same thing
1: right yep i've heard a lot of guys talk about you know hunting some of the plain states through you know the, the western midwest i guess oklahoma kansas nebraska and making note of what they would consider like junk parcels or overlooked parcels things that you know that only had like fallow fields or crp and just maybe a couple of draws with no standing timber that those areas, uh, maybe I shouldn't even be saying this our pod, on the podcast, but, um, those are areas they like to focus on just locating deer because it seemed like the two and three year olds were sticking to the, you know, the Creek bottoms and where there was timber. And then the older deer were finding those parcels where there was, you know, no pressure. Obviously there's more guys hunting those Creek bottoms with timber than those open draws and, and grasslands and fallow
2: fields. Human intrusions, everything I say it on the podcast probably twice a week, but, uh, you know, human intrusion ruins a lot of good properties. Yeah. So, I mean, I try to avoid human intrusion as much as the deer do. If a property's got too much human pressure, I'm looking elsewhere.
0: There you guys have it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Also, thanks to Don for taking the time to record with us this past August or July And if you want to listen to more episodes with Don, you can head over and finish this full conversation. It was episode 184 on Trail Cam Radio. I believe we've had him on two other times. And then if you want to listen to his podcast and Terry Pierce, Chasing Giants, they have new episodes every single Monday. It's a great listen. And we hope you guys enjoy it. Be sure to head over to the email newsletter if you'd like to sign up for that. And if you find any value in this podcast or this episode, a written review would help us out a ton. And then until next time, we'll be going on to step two. Have a great week.